Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. This is Lainey, and we're back with another episode of Editors Unedited. So I want to introduce our editor today, Ivy Givens, who is the associate editor at Mariner Books. Hi, Ivy. Hi, Lainey. Thank you for having us. Of course. We have a great author, so I'm turning it over to you. Thank you. Yeah, we are so excited to talk about a very special book today. It's called Good Grief on Loving Pets Here and Hereafter. E.B. Bartels, the author, is with us. E.B. is a nonfiction writer, a former Newtonville Books bookseller, and a Grub Street instructor with an MFA from Columbia. And her writing has been published in, in Catapult, The Rumpus, The Millions, and many other places. She lives with her husband and their many, many pets in Massachusetts. Hi, E.B. Hi, Ivy. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So this book is really unlike any other, which I know I tell you a lot, and I <laughs> really believe it. Um, there are plenty of books that dig into mourning human family members, but not so for mourning our animals. So what made you want to write this book? I mean, Ivy, I have had a lot of pets and they keep dying on me. <laughs> and that is what drew me to the subject matter. Why do we keep doing this to ourselves, right? Why do we let ourselves fall in love with these animals only to have them die anywhere from two to 20 years after you you bring them into your life? Um, and I also was really interested sort of for personal reasons to try to understand you know, was I the only person who maybe felt so dramatically and, you know, intensely um, about my pets dying um, and what other people did when their animals uh, passed away? And I wanted to kind of see, like, am I alone? Am I the only one? What what do other people do? And you are not the only one. Gosh, it is such a it's an almost universal experience, I feel like, at this point. Um, and so you use the phrase throughout the book to, to reference the experience of losing a pet, you, you call it a disenfranchised grief. And what do you think is at the root of that disenfranchisement? And do you remember the first time that you realized that we lack traditions for mourning animals? Yeah, so disenfranchised grief is really any type of grief that we don't talk about as a society a lot. It's often used to describe the grief that comes with having a miscarriage or maybe going through a divorce. With pet death, I found that I, at least myself, often when I lost an animal, I would be quick to kind of dismiss um, or uh, diminish sort of my own feelings thinking, oh, well, you know, it was just a dog or, you know, at least it wasn't my mom or, you know, um, always kind of comparing grief. Um, and it's very human, I think, to do that. but what is important is finding people who you can talk about these types of disenfranchised grief with. And um, 
I hadn't really done that a lot. I realized I just sort of, I did the different things I did to mourn my animals. And then I kind of moved on. But then um, in grad school, I started writing these short personal essays about pets I'd had. And they always ended with the ways those pets died. And a friend of mine who had been reading one of them, she pointed out, oh, it's so interesting, like, you know, that you scattered her dog's ashes by this lighthouse she said you know when my parakeets died we would always bring them to this specific statue like in her town park bury them there and like you know maybe you should research what people you know other people other cultures do um to mourn their pets and it hadn't even really occurred to me that people might do something different i think i just thought people either did exactly what my family did or they didn't do anything at all so i started to kind of dig into this research and I just fell into a rabbit hole. And I realized that, you know, we don't actually lack traditions. There are lots of them. We just don't talk about them as much as we talk about other types of grieving rituals. Yeah. And so the book is structured around seven pets that you've had. You've had even more than that, I think. You may even have seven like at this very moment. (laughs) Um, And there's also a a very famous horse who makes an appearance in the book and he sort of belonged to the whole country. But um, so can you tell us about your, your decision to root the book in that very personal storytelling around the pets that you had? and how they open up into wider questions about how best to love our pets as they're passing away. So um, at least speaking, speaking from personal experience as a nonfiction writer, I often feel a sense of um, imposter syndrome, you know, especially when I was tackling this subject. You know, I'm not a licensed psychologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a grief counselor. I'm not a veterinarian. Um, I'm not a taxidermist. Um, And I, you know, my expertise in approaching this research is just as someone who's had a lot of pets um, and had a lot of pets who've died. So I often felt like by putting my own personal experiences with pet death in the book, it was a way for me sort of to show my expertise. Like I've been there. I know what it's like to be sad and upset because, you know, your, your fish died. And I wanted to then use those personal stories, though, as jumping off points to illustrate some of these bigger concepts or different traditions and rituals around pet death. I mean, also, I just I love to read that kind of nonfiction. Eula Biss is one of my favorite writers, uh, Caitlin Doty, Alex Marzano Lesnovich, all writers who really beautifully blend the personal story inside research. And I just feel like there's so much that you can do by showing a larger concept through the lens of a personal story. In one of the chapters, I talk about my pet tortoise, Aristotle, who ran away. I had him in middle school and he actually ran away one day uh, when I was out volunteering at my local library and I came home and he was gone. And it was really upsetting to me because I didn't have like a tangible confirmation of his death. You know, there was no body to bury. There were no ashes to scatter. And I, you know, I assumed he was dead, but I never really knew for sure. And so I use that story to then kind of dig into why is it so important to have physical things to hold on to after someone that we love dies. And a couple examples were I interviewed this great taxidermist, uh, Lauren Kane Lysak, who works um, out of Joshua Tree in California. And she does really beautiful work where, you know, she can preserve your whole entire pet's body. She can just do the skeleton. She also does a really sweet, like a nose cast. So if you just want like a little like ceramic imprint of your pet's nose. And these are all really 
special things I think that when you're missing your animal, you can physically hold them and touch them. And it feels a little bit like a way to, to anchor yourself in their memory. Another example was I interviewed Jennifer Williams, who's the founder of a company called Cuddle Clones, um, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. She makes um, realistic stuffed animals of people's pets. So you send a bunch of images of your animal and they will make you a stuffed dog, cat, I'm sure there'll do other animals as well um, that looks just like your your pet. And she said that often, you know, like she's she's her company's made them for kids like going off to college or like seniors who have to move into assisted living who can't have their animal with them. But she said a lot of people get them after their pet dies. And it's a way to kind of have and hold something when you're missing that other being. Yeah, there's so many. Uh, there's such a breadth of diversity and that, that you profile in this book about different, all the different ways that we can mourn and honor our animals. It's really, it's really amazing and eye-opening. And it's, you, you take a really global look too. I mean, all the examples that you gave just now are, are only in America and, and that's only the start. And you, you take us much further afield and, um, the book spans really millennia of mourning practices for pets through various cultures and time periods. Turns out having pets is pretty intrinsic to the human experience uh, through the ages. So can you take us through your process for deciding which cultures to look at and maybe some of the lessons that you found in them? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Ivy, I could have written this book 10 times and featured different cultures in every single version of this book. I started working on the very beginnings of this book in fall 2012 when I started at Columbia in my MFA program. Um, and while I've been working on it over the past 10 years, I've also taught middle school. I've taught high school. I worked as a nanny. Um, I've had a lot of different jobs. I worked at a bookstore. And so I was doing the research and the writing sort of in between when I could. And so often the cultures and, you know, different places that I looked into were because they were the most accessible to me, uh, often geographically. So what I would do for a while is that anytime I was going anywhere, um, I would Google, you know, pet cemeteries near San Francisco or pet cemeteries near Tokyo. And I would then go and visit and check out these places, you know, when I happened to be like, you know, somewhere for like my friend's wedding or whatever, I would also like throw in a, a pet cemetery visit as well. Um, so often the, the cultures I sort of got more into studying were simply because I, I happened to kind of um, be able to, to visit them or, or check them out. Um, but like in particular, for example, um, I looked uh, pretty deeply at Japan's pet death rituals, and that came about because my best friend um, from college lives in Japan now. So in 2017, my husband Richie and I went to visit her, and I looked up pet cemeteries in Japan, and we ended up at the Jindaiji Pet Cemetery, which is in Western Tokyo. And Richie and I happened to be there on this day where they had a pet uh, memorial service, which they do sort of, you know, throughout the year at, at different seasons. And it was this beautiful ceremony, and it felt very old and incorporating all these kind of ancient uh, Buddhist traditions. But then later when I got home and I started reading more about the history of pet cemeteries in Japan, I learned that actually a lot of them were built fairly recently in like the 1960s and 70s. 
and that those ceremonies that they have are actually sort of like invented tradition is what one scholar calls it, where they take kind of older traditions and apply them in a new way. And I actually, I really love that as a concept because I think it's very um, freeing and sort of exciting if you are like, I don't know how to mourn my pet. I don't know what to do. You can kind of look to older ways of mourning and remembering uh, maybe in other ways or, you know, how we do that for people and apply it in a new and different way for what you need right now. I want to also highlight that you worked on this book for how many, like 10 years? Are we coming up on a decade of yeah, having researched this? More or less. <laughs> there is a lot in here that, um, that I'm sure you, yeah, as you say, you could have written this book 10 times over. It's, um, it's very, uh, it's very rich on, on that sort of research. And I, I love it for that. We could easily talk all day about um, the various traditions that run through it, but I want to talk about your writing style too. You you have a very kind and welcoming and just utterly devoid of judgment sort of tone in this book. And I think the judgment part, um, you came by honestly, because animals themselves, that is partly why we love them. They do not judge us. And, and you bring that to the page too. So how did you, how did you cultivate that style on the page in, in writing this book? So when I reached out to people to interview them for this book, I often found that if I just sort of said I was writing about it and didn't really give any information about myself, people were often a lot more closed off. They kind of were hesitant. I think they thought maybe I was some journalist that was going to like make fun of their experience or kind of analyze it. But I found as soon as I said, you know, I'm writing about this because I've had all these pets and they've died. And I like, you know, missed a week of school when I was in college because, you know, we had to put my dog down. People then immediately would open up a lot more when they realized, okay, like this person, like she's one of us, like, you know, we're in this together. And so many of the interviews I did actually just turned into like conversations of like me telling people about my pets and them telling me about theirs. So I really tried to approach the writing in the same way I approached the interviews, which is putting myself in it, showing I've been here, I've gone through it. I've also felt like, you know, garbage after having a pet die. Um, and I really tried to write in a voice that was one that I would want to hear if I was in grief and I was mourning. And, you know, my feelings is just like people mourn and grieve in lots of different ways. And, um, you know, not everything is for everyone. You know, I don't know if I personally would ever pursue like cloning, for example, but my feeling is that as long as no one is getting hurt, you know, grieve in any way that makes you feel better because the only way is kind of through. So I tried to just really always keep that in mind and everything I was writing. It really comes across. And the other things that I love so much about this book is um, as a book person um, and, and the, I think the fellow book people and our audience today will appreciate this. There's a, there's, there's this undercurrent in the book, which is the literary tradition of, of pet death. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the comfort that you found in other authors work on grief and how those books have shaped your writing and just maybe list a few books that you were reading while writing this? Sure. I mean, I, I could talk about this like all day. I always turn to other writers when I am writing for inspiration and understanding. And I actually, I really looked at a range of types of books when I was writing Good Grief. 
obviously I read a lot of nonfiction about pet death. So, you know, like scholarly works about, you know, pet mummies or, you know, Buddhist pet rituals. But then I, I read a lot, um, several times, a really excellent book by Wallace Seif, which is a guide. He's a psychologist, but a guide um, on how to cope with pet death, which is a book I highly recommend for anyone who's actually recently lost a pet. But then I also read lots and lots of personal nonfiction, a lot of pet memoirs, Marley and Me by Josh Grogan, of course, Off the Leash by Matthew Gilbert. Uh, Fetch, which is an illustrated memoir by Nicole J. Georges. I loved Afterglow by Eileen Miles. All of those were just so great reminders of all the different ways that we love our pets and the relationships we have with them. And I just always found it really inspiring to to read people's um, own stories of the pets they've had and, and loved and lost. And I also read a lot of fiction too, because a lot of fiction writers really dig into these ideas deeply in their stories. Annie Hartnett, who um, her most recent book is Unlikely Animals, um, but her first novel, Rabbit Cake, has what I think is one of the most powerful and devastating dog death scenes I've ever read. And I think she just really nails like all those feelings that come when you have to um, have your your pet put down. And then also I love The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. Just he writes a lot about sort of learning about euthanasia, the ways we can give our pets a good and loving death. That's just such a fantastic book. You know, I also, I read a lot of poetry too, actually. Dog Songs by Mary Oliver is like one of my favorites. And then a book that I now find I give to everybody I know uh, when I find out that they've lost a pet um, sort of toes the line between fiction and nonfiction. It's The Last Will and Testament of an Extremely Distinguished Dog by Eugene O'Neill, the playwright. And he wrote it after his family's Dalmatian, Blemmy, died. He wrote this short piece as a gift for his wife. And he writes from the voice of his deceased dog. And it's sort of written like a will would, you know, bequeathing, you know, my my leash to so-and-so and my vest and all this stuff. But the heart of it is, you know, the dog thanking them for all the love and care that you know, they gave to him over his years and also encouraging them to go out and get another, a new puppy that needs some love and a good home as well that, you know, you shouldn't feel like you're marring your memory of your, your previous pet by getting a new pet. So yeah, I, I love that book so much. So, so many works that I turn to again and again, but especially the Eugene O'Neill. It's awesome. I have chills hearing you talk about that. That sounds amazing. I, so I want to ask you one more thing that's sort of in reference to what you said at the beginning, sort of in passing, but I want you to dig into it a bit more. What do you think is behind our reasoning for always coming back? And, or as Eugene's Dalmatian might've said, like behind that impetus to, to go and get another puppy after your, after your dog dies and what's the bequeathing of the leash has done? Yeah, I think, I mean, you mentioned this Ivy that pets give us a type of non-judgmental love that is hard often for fellow humans to give each other. Um, there's something really, you know, magical about, you know, the way that like a dog is so thrilled every time you come home. Um, or, you know, how a pet is just so happy, like that you put, like, I have a pet tortoise now and, you know, I put like strawberries in his, his enclosure and he goes nuts and, you know, he, you know, there's something really special about that kind of non-judgmental love, but I also think that um, pets remind us to kind of 
slow down and appreciate a lot of things and really live in the present moment. Um, you know, like I can't really be on my phone when I'm walking my dog because he's super uh, prey drive. Uh, so I'm always making sure he's not running into the street, chasing squirrels and stuff. And I love that though, because I have to stay grounded in the moment and just enjoy like the sun or the rain or whatever's going on. And I think that's why people keep having pets is kind of, they help us, you know, remember all the things that are good about being alive, even though they do die in the end. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, um, this book can speak even more to that very wonderful thing, which is that, yeah, pets make life even more fun, much more fun um, every day. And thank you for writing this book. Uh, It's truly a bomb. And the book is called Good Grief on Loving Pets Here and Hereafter. It is out on August 2nd from Mariner Books. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. See you next week.